This is November 11, 2007. This is lecture discussion number 20 on Genesis 1 through 6. Do, do we, do I need the lights on? Can everybody see fine? Okay, everybody can see fine? No, we want lights. Okay, good. I'm used to lights myself. Uh, before we get fully underway this morning and, and re-attack Genesis 6, um, and note that Genesis 6 is going to require much re-attacking. And sometimes it won't seem like we are in Genesis 6, but we really are. Uh, it's just that I approach it from many different angles. But prepare for a siege on Genesis 6. It sends you all through Scripture. And so you have to go around and, and get all the pieces. As you know, what I'm doing today is basically saying that there is a comparison. i getting ahead of myself, so I may repeat this. There's a comparison between Genesis 6, uh, Genesis 11, and Genesis 19. They form a, a sandwich, if you will. Those three are tied together, linked together. And so when you study Genesis 6, naturally, you're going to want to study Genesis 11 and Genesis 19. I've also said that when you study Genesis 6, you must deal with Genesis 1-1 to 1-2, that fall of Satan uh, element that is between those two verses is universally accepted. Again, not a geological ages. Don't make me uh, have to defend uh, something like evolution. I would never do such a thing. There is no space between those two verses for evolution or the geological concept of ancient or billions of years. There's only a hundred years at most there. Uh, most believe there's a hundred because of Isaiah 65. Anyway, this is what we'll focus on today. 6, 11, and 19, the relationship between the three of those. And prepare for this to be a long time. I'm hoping, as you know, up to 20 uh, lectures on Genesis 1 through 6. For some of you, this is lecture number 20. Uh, for others, it's their first or second. And we need to be uh, compassionate for them if we can. And we need to back up a little bit more as a reminder to you, but also to help the visitors that come and go and the people that can't make it here every Sunday. Uh, and because we have begun this comparison, what is Genesis 6 real quickly? You know, noatic flood. What's Genesis 11? Tower of Babel. What's Genesis 19? Sodom and Gomorrah. That's correct. So I am saying to you the premise of the hypothesis is that there is a relationship between the three of those. that you They make a whole, three parts to a whole. So, because we are approaching these similarities and differences, let's take 6 and 19, Sodom and, Gen and Noatic Flood, it's only responsible, I need to do this upon occasion, to put a, an equation, uh, what I call the love versus holiness or mercy versus justice equation back on the board. And hopefully you'll know why. And if you don't know why, that's okay. Someday it'll make more sense. Just know for now that these connections are present. And in the event that you read... What I'm talking about is the holiness equation now, or the mercy versus holiness, or the love versus justice equation I'm about to put on. Know that there are connections there, just as there are connections all throughout Scripture. That, by the way, is how you know Scripture is Scripture. There's connections in you. God is a God of complex interlinking. Um, if you have... Any health issues, you're going to understand, especially if you get to my age, 
which isn't that great, I know, but it's bad enough. Not very many of you will trade, if you will. But I know that I have plantar fasciitis, so as soon as I tore that foot, I had shoulder trouble. Now, you wouldn't think that my shoulder, I should be able to throw, just because my left foot hurts. But what you do is you compensate and you hurt something else, and everything's affected. Bill's about to go in and get his hip replacement, uh, finally, and having a hip out affects everything. And the same thing on a micro level. It, you, your body is extraordinary. Our bodies are amazing devices, and it's all linked in. Look at the ecology. I uh, occasionally you'll see this. Uh, if I if I kill a bird, a flock of birds, or well, the bees are missing now. The honeybees are missing in certain parts of the country. Well, that's a crisis because the honeybees affect the pollination. The pollination affects. The guy said, "Well, we can grow the fruit. It's just very expensive if you don't have honeybees." So this world is tightly connected. We are tightly connected. And the Bible is likewise tightly connected. And that tells you something. It tells you the author of creation is the author of Scripture. Anyway, I'm going to put this holiness versus mercy equation. And if you don't understand it, it's okay. I just want you to know that the equation is really just linkages. In the event that you read Hebrews 5, for example, and you do so out of the context that it really is in. If you read Hebrews 5 and you do not read Genesis 15, you should have Hebrews 5 and Genesis 15 side by side. If you try to pick out, and what is Hebrews 5, by the way? That's where Christ is described as vehemently in tears and anguish, which is a reference to where? Garden of Gethsemane. If you try to get a Gethsemane picture, if you try to understand what is going on in Gethsemane without Genesis 15, you're going to end up with what I call a Hollywood interpretation. And you will be a mess. Sorry. Note that the popular culture and the media, they revel in portraying Christ as confused and dazed and afraid. They think that's exactly what they want. Why would they want to do that, by the way, as opposed to declaring him to be omnipotent, omniscient God who knows all things? Why would they want to show him as dazed, confused, afraid, unaware? Well, because it would uh, strip him of his godhood. It, and again, if you read Psalm 22.1, what is Psalm 22.1? Father, why have you forsaken Or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Notice he didn't say Father. He said my God. And he would know the difference, wouldn't he? If you read that, Psalm 22.1, and you do not read Exodus 32, again, you're going to succumb to a Hollywood interpretation. I absolutely guarantee it. Anyway, here's the equation. Uh, a formula might be a better word. Let me put it up here again so that you can keep it in mind because it applies. Genesis 15 connects to or equals, if you wish, Exodus 32, which equals Psalm 22. One of the utterances of Christ from the cross, one of the seven, which equals Matthew 26, 36 through 46. What's that? That's Gethsemane, which equals Matthew 
27:46. What's that? That's Psalm 22:1 being uttered from the cross, which equals Hebrews 5, which again is a reference back to Psalm 22:1 and Gethsemane, and Gethsemane takes me back to Genesis 15 and of course Exodus 32. Now, along with that, I'm going to add these, and you have to put them in in their chronological order if you want. I'm going to put in Genesis 1. Why am I putting in Genesis 1? And no, I haven't forgotten the second or the third and fourth days of Christ in creation. This is the first day of creation, if you will. God coming, Christ coming in type, descending the primeval light coming to earth, which is in darkness and covered in water. So then I add Genesis 3. What's Genesis 3? That is the first promise. That's the fall of Adam. Now, here comes Genesis 6. That's the Noadic flood. And then, of course, I'm back to Genesis 15, and I'll throw in Genesis 19. Now, what have I added there? Well, I've added the Noadic flood and Sodom and Gomorrah to my Gethsemane formula. This is the love or the mercy versus the holiness or justice formula. And what do I mean by that? I mean that God has to solve what seems to be the unsolvable. His omnipotent mercy and love, which demands that all be saved, is colliding with, in our minds, his omnipotent, infinite justice that says all must be judged for sin and death will be the result. So this collision between these omnipotent forces, the mercy versus justice formula, where does this first come into play? It first comes into play between the heifer, the ram, the goat, and the two birds of Abraham right here. The smoking furnace and the burning lamp of Genesis 15 is the mercy of God, which is the lamp, and the justice of God, which is the smoking furnace And by the way, you see that perfectly in Genesis 19. Why? What's in Genesis 19? Sodom and Gomorrah, and the smoke came up like a furnace. So you see the judgment and the mercy colliding in Genesis 15 while Abraham is asleep between the sacrifice of the heifer, the goat, the ram, and the two birds. Right? Does that make any sense? Probably not. That's why I'm saying to you it's okay. Just know that when you get in here and you start reading Hebrews 5 and you're starting to panic, recognize that Genesis 15, Exodus 32, all these connect to it and you will come out of it. Then when you really get aggressive, start putting 1, 3, 6, and 19 back in there and now things will work for you. Genesis 15 is the centerpiece And Gethsemane is the fulfillment of Genesis 15. You cannot understand what's going on in Gethsemane without first understanding what's going on in Genesis 15. And that is why I say so many end up with a Hollywood interpretation. And again, this is the infinite mercy, the omnipotent mercy, the omnipotent, all-powerful love of God colliding with the infinite, omnipotent, all-powerful justice of God And Genesis 6 and Genesis 19 is what I'm adding today because that happens to be our subject. The linkage between these three. Why do I add Genesis 6 and Genesis 19? 
Genesis 6 is the sons of God, or what the Septuagint calls the angels of God, saw the daughters of men, and the daughters of men bore the Nephilim out of that, and Sodom is here. Genesis 19. So why would I add those two to the equation that essentially explains Gethsemane? Well, get some medicine. I have to be on the hard stuff today. We learned something the first night of the puppy. And it's been a while since I've had a puppy. Twelve years or so, maybe thirteen, maybe fourteen. I'll have to do the math. Long time. What kind of puppy? Um, a Labrador. It had a chocolate lab parent and a golden, oh no, a yellow lab mother. Her father was chocolate, the mother was, was uh, white. Naturally, the parents were all excited, assuming they were going to get chocolate and white dogs, and they got black. And so we have this jet black thing that can't be seen if it hides. I, I acted, I, sitting at my desk, I had to keep it where, or keep her, it's a girl, I had to keep her where, and of course I named all my dogs off of prop, after prophets or significant biblical figures, and this one is Abigail because of the life of David, which is one of the great tragedies in scripture, and so not that I expect her to be a tragedy, but she has a, has a great, uh, uh, name. Abigail was a wonderful, wonderful woman in scripture who endured a great deal. So anyway, um, I have to have a light on her to find her because she'll chew the electrical cords. This is what they do. But the first night that we had her, we learned something that if you don't pay attention to her, you can't put them in a box. If you put them in a box, what are they going to do? They're going to cry all night. That's right. So you give up on that. You, you bring them up. You put the box on the bed, hoping that'll work. Will that work? No, that won't work. This is a six-week-old puppy. That won't work. So now you take the puppy out of the box, and what have you done? Set yourself up for doom. <laughs> now you have to pay attention for all 12 hours, which you don't. So you fall asleep, and then I woke up to, uh, Steve, the dog is on the move. And sure enough, she was, and we learned that if you don't take the dog out every 45 minutes or so into the snow, in your bare feet because you forgot to put your shoes on, you were in such a hurry um, that you would end up with removing your bed uh, covering, taking it downstairs to the uh, laundry in the middle of the night. Anyway, why is 6 and 19 dealing with the, the collision of love and mercy? Why is that happening? Immediately, you notice two things occur in Genesis 6. You make a column. In Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, make yourself a column. Okay? Put the dead over here and the living over here. Okay? How many die in Genesis 6? Yeah. Henry Morris says six billion. Okay? How many, uh, sorry. No, I gotta get into billions. That's millions. 
Yes. Six times ten to the ninth. Yes. How many lived? Eight. That seems like if you're gonna you're gonna you keep a score and and dead is the holiness of God or the justice of God and living is the mercy of God. Does it seem fair? We have a whole bunch of dead, not very many live. Whole lot of judgment, not very much mercy. It may seem that many die and few escape, and to the shallow student that judgment is heavy and mercy is light. That cannot be true. And the same thing occurs in Genesis 19. How many are in Sodom? I have a city of maybe over a million. How many get out? A lot. His daughters. Wife makes a little bit. Tries to run back. He buries her in salt. Not good. Same thing. Many die if you escape. Is judgment heavy? Mercy light? It can't be, by the way. It just can't be the case. By the way, as an aside, just for fun here, what other doctrinal truth? You see, the mercy of God and the justice of God in collision causes great turmoil in theological circles. What other doctrinal truth, one that also causes scholars great anguish and trepidity and anxiety, is, is, is a collision as well? What other doctrine has this collision element right off the top of your head that uh, no one likes to deal with? What's that? Yes, and then let me say it better for you, um, uh, God's uh, omniscience and man's free will is a collision. How can God have all-powerful mercy and all-powerful justice? How can he have that collision? How can he resolve it? How did he resolve it, by the way? That's Jesus Christ. Yes, he's the solution. Not your, my will be done, your will. The will is Christ coming and sacrificing himself. That's how he solves the collision. He had, in other, in other words, what, what does he need? If he has two omnipotent forces, what, what does he need to solve a collision of two omnipotent forces? He must have an omnipotent force. And so what did you just learn about Jesus Christ? He's an omnipotent force, in which case he is, he is God. That's correct. As opposed to the Hollywood interpretation of this. So, there are the other that has a collision element, if you will, are the two truths clearly taught in Scripture that seem unresolvable is God's omniscience and man's free will. Predestined versus accountability. And do you notice, by the way, that mercy and holiness, what I call mercy v. holiness, and omniscience versus free will are both prominent here. They're both prominent in 6 and 19. Both collisions... Doctrinal collisions, if you will, are in force at the Noadic flood and the destruction of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, you will start to trace it all through Scripture as you begin to study and figure it out. Man's free will and God's omniscience collides everywhere in Scripture. Collides in Revelation. Collides in Genesis 1-1. It collides with each and every individual. And feel free to wander off and play with that while I move along. I saw Jim brought more food. What'd you bring, Jim? Beans. Okay. Okay. There we go. I, I do intend to deal with all this today, but I want you to note the word intend. I wrote that um, early yesterday. And as I got going, I recognized, okay, I may not make it. 
to this particular issue. But uh, I want you to know that it's on the table. Oh, okay. Alongside of that, remember Rule 1. Those of you who don't uh, have Rule 1, uh, we provide Rule 1 at the exits. Rule 1. Um, the goodness and the omniscience of God has to always be here. Because if you look at this and say, I got six billion dead, maybe eight billion, depending on what position you take. But at the most, I'm going to have at least, I'm going to have billions dead. And I'm going to have eight living. You might assume a couple of things that would be incorrect. You might assume that God is unfairly dealing with humanity. And if you did so, you're in violation of rule one. You also may assume um, that there is too much justice and no mercy. And again, that would be a violation of rule one. And as I said, feel free to pick the rules up. There's five of them. Um, and they're, in, they're already plasticized for you. Hey, so you have to remember the goodness, and I'll read it here in a second, the goodness and the omniscience of God, and that Christ is God, and that God and, or that Christ is omnipotent. Have no position when you read Scripture that is in conflict with this absolute truth, no matter how it makes you feel. Have no position. I, I know you. some of you just love these movies and these plays where Christ is is defeated almost, is barely struggling to get to Calvary. And when he gets there, it's a miracle. He stated, oh, good grief. If it wasn't for Simon the Cyrenian, we wouldn't have had a crucifixion. Oh, boy, are we lucky. And I know it makes you feel good. And that's what I want you to say to yourself. It doesn't matter how I feel. I have to pay attention to what is true. I have no feeling that is in conflict with truth. I often hear the complaint. I've read the Bible. I get nothing out of it. Well, begin at rule one. Jesus Christ is God. He is the visible of the invisible. He is the word made flesh. He is the I am. Now, let's read rule one. John 8.24, John 8.58 is where you begin. Jesus is God, always is God, never is not God. It's my favorite double negative. He's omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent always that way. He's never not those three. He is always just, always good, and has no sin in him or fear, which is sin, ever. Ever. That's rule one. If you start with rule one, you're going to go start going through Scripture. You'll never say, I've read the Bible and I get nothing out of it anymore. Because you will start with rule one. Starting here is going to unlock scripture. Failing or refusing to believe rule one, which is John 8.24, you will perish. But first off, you won't get anything out of scripture. If you start in rule one and you believe rule one, you'll be fine. If not, the Bible will not unlock, it will not unfold, it will not reveal its deep secrets and mysteries. A Christless reading of Scripture is of no value. So when you come to me and say, I've read the Bible, it's of no value. What do I think? Yeah, you're not, you've rejected the first rule. You tell me that it is meaningless. I know rule number one is not believed or some of all, or all or some aspect is rejected. You've decided that Christ is not God. You've decided that he's not omnipotent. You've decided that God isn't fair. God isn't good. In which case, You'll never figure out Genesis 6 or Genesis 19. You're doomed. Don't feel bad. Fix it. 
Read rule one, go from there. It, it's not as obvious as you might think. It's not as easy as you might think. It seems easy. Because you now, once you believe rule one, what do you do next? You use rule one. For example, our current hypotheses are current comparisons. Genesis 6 to Babel to Sodom. What is similar? What is contrasting? When you study crises in Scripture, and this is a crisis. I have a crisis in Genesis 6. I have angels of God, if I have the Septuagint or the cosmological view, which I do, which is the most literal, which is the most ancient, which is the most defensible, by the way, and the most consistent with God's character, and the most consistent with Rule 1. You have the angels of God leaving their estate and taking daughters of men who then bear the Nephilim. That's a crisis in human in history. And God intervened and his judgment came. So when you see his judgment, what should you do next? Yes, absolutely. So you make a judgment mercy list. You apply rule one. Yes, he's holy. Yes, he's just. Yes, he will end sin. But he's also always good and fair. So go ahead, make your mercy list. Where in Genesis 6 is mercy? Okay, everybody, stop. Uh-oh, don't. But, uh, the wreath is here. The judgment may be easy to see. The mercy may not be easy to see, but both have to be there. So begin to look. Where for quickly, quickly tell me where is mercy in Genesis 6? Where is it? Save Noah. That's good. That's the mercy. Where else? He saved animals. That's mercy. Where else? I got 120 years for everybody, and he always saves children. Children are what? It's his. How many children in the six billion? Or eight billion or ten billion, depending on your position. So, Always find the mercy. Now, moving on. Why was the flooding, the water, the covering of the entire earth, destroying man, Nephilim, animals, the existing vegetation, the cosmology of the earth, which is the vapor canopy, why is that the only possible solution? Why do I say it's the only possible solution? I say so because of rule one. What in rule one makes it such that the only possible solution was the flooding of the entire earth? And if I'm correct, it is the second flooding. And of course, I'm correct. It is the second flooding because I have the first flooding here. The earth totally covered in water. And so, obviously, now I have a second flooding. Why is this flooding of water, the covering of the entire earth, destroying a man? Uh huh, uh huh. Why is that the only possible solution? There is no other solution to what is going on, which is the sons of God, the angels taking the, the daughters of men and bearing of Nephilim. The only possible solution to this, there's only one, is flood. That's correct, because the rule one, he is omniscient. Jesus Christ knows all things. 
See John 19, 20, 21. He sees all things all the time because he's outside of time. He is the creator of time. And so you reapply that rule number one. The only one who can take into account all things is Christ, is God, the triune God. And he is pure good, pure good. Rule one. So this is the perfect, good, holy way. If he, if there were other ways, he wouldn't be omniscient. You see? All other ways would be imperfect, inferior, flawed, unjust. Which would mean there, they would be failure. And so we should never ask, why did he do it this way? What should we ask? We should ask, why is it that all other, any other ways are wrong? And so you can come up with your own ways. Knowing right off the bat that what? Yes, that you're wrong. And that's kind of cool. So come up with your ways. Whatever they are. He could have saved more people. What would that be? That would be wrong. He could have used fire. What would that be? That would be wrong. It would be inferior. It would be flawed. That's how you approach, that's how you use rule one when you go to scripture. And then it will mean something. So, pick one. Start by knowing it would fail. It would not address all things, you see. It wouldn't account for everything. And discover the flaws in it if you want to and compare it to the perfect. As you begin to recognize that the one way is the perfect good way, then you begin to see how it is so and why everything else is a flaw. Now, once you get your starting place correct, God's character is respected. Once you respect him and honor him, here will come the answers. Now, the Babel exception. What do I have here? Genesis 6. A lot, a whole lot of death happening here. Lots of dead people. What do I have? Genesis 19. Sodom and Gomorrah. A whole lot of dead people. Okay, but I have the Babel exception. How many dead people do I have in Babel? Not very many. So, why didn't he follow the pattern? I have three crises. This crisis, no destruction. Destruction, destruction, exception. Why the exception? Why the exception? Was it fair? Absolutely. Is there any other way he could have done it? No. See rule one. Great wickedness and death in Genesis 6, in Genesis 19, in Sodom. Great wickedness. The outcry is great. That means there's tremendous amount of blood being spilt and death. And God gives time to both. And when that time expires, he comes and destroys them. Babel, as I just said, is, seems to be treated differently. And you will hear people say so, that God is not fair. And they would be what? They would be wrong. Because it seems that they were on the same path as Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, am I going to take the position that Babel was on the same path as Genesis 6 and Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, I am. I'm going to do it. Let me show you. 
Genesis 11, verse 6. I will have compensatory caffeine while you turn. Look at this verse and look at it carefully. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. What's the obvious question? What are they beginning to do? They have one language and they are unified. And they have a singular purpose and they're about to do it. What is it that they're going to do? And this is what they begin to do. And now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. What does that mean? I'll read it in more more modern language. Now nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. They are about to become very good at what? Everything. What were they going to do? But they're scattered. Why is, and by the way, do you think they're going to be doing something good? No. They're going to be doing something extremely wicked. Why does he scatter them? He could have given them the time to develop it, couldn't he? He could have just backed off, let them develop it, and come in and done what? Destroyed them. But this time, he acts early. When he sees those angels coming down and grabbing a couple of women, what could he have done? Pow, pow. But he doesn't. Let's it run its course. Same thing, 19. He's watching Sodom and Gomorrah slaughter person after person after person. And again, next week, we'll get into what they're doing. By the way, I think Sodom and Gomorrah is doing the exact same thing as happening in the Tower of Babel. I'll prove that next week. Because we are running out of time. But he didn't do it in, in Babel. He scatters them instead. Why was this the only perfect, good, just way? All other ways would have been flawed. If you think that it would have been a better thing to do to blow them all up, then you are what? Wrong? This is the best way. To scatter them is the best way. Not destroy them. How many of them go to Sodom, by the way? Quite a few. Quite a few go to Sodom. So what what do you just see here in Babel? What do you see? You see mercy. Scattering them is mercy. Judgment will come. What we had is we had some just migrate on down to here. And the rest scattered. He gave the Sodomites a chance. What did they do? They kept going, didn't they? Okay, let's take a run at this. We've got a few minutes here. Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Don't have time to put it all on the board for you, but we'll at least read it. And I'll emphasize the list. As you know, when you go through the Bible, do something that is absolutely useless everywhere else in your life except the grocery store. Make a list of every significant word that you can see. Now, the whole earth, how many is that? That's everybody, had one language. 
I want you to think about that a second. The whole earth has one language and one speech. And it came to pass. So after what? Time. What's time? Time is mercy. As they journeyed from the east. What's the obvious question? What's east? What's east, by the way? Yeah, that's where God's flaming sword guarded the Garden of Eden. Well, this is post-flood now, but they're getting away from who? When you journey from the east, you're always doing the same thing in Scripture. You're leaving God behind. As they journeyed from the east, they found a plain. Oh, looky, we found a plain. What plain did they find? Shinar. That's very interesting because Shinar comes up previously as what? That's the kingdom of Nimrod. Anyway, let's keep going. In the land, and they dwelt there. Were they supposed to be dwelling? Right after the flood, what does God say to them? Go out, be fruitful, multiply, spread yourself, replenish the earth. So they ain't doing that. We're going to go to Shinar and sit down. And what are we going to do? Then they said one to another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. We, why are we baking bricks thoroughly? We can make bricks. Let's not bake them so thoroughly. Let me put it in modern terms. I've got a concrete facade out there. I could have stripped it on the first day and not applied heat to it. What would I have by now? I'd have crumbled concrete because it would have froze and I had a big mess. I want to make sure that baby's hard as it can be. How come? Because the little neighborhood kids are going to come over here and chip away at it. That's how come. I know that's happening. That's just what we do. They're going to run their little skateboards into it, which they do. It's very interesting to watch them. They come down the ramp now, down the handicap ramp, which is appropriate because soon they will all be what? Handicap. That's right. Down they come, down about 60 miles an hour, and they take a flying leap over the curbs, which flying and leap is exactly what happens. And then here comes the, and you said, it's on TV. All you got to do is watch the result of this, but they love it. And anyway, they will end up hitting the front of the building ultimately. And so I want it to be, uh, I want it to survive. They want these bricks and they want to bake them thoroughly because they want them as strong as possible. How come? Because they intend to build a fortification. Now, that's really, really what? Stupid. Yes, thank you. Who are they thinking they're going to fortify themselves against? That guy they left at the east. They figure he's coming. Are they right? Oh, yeah, because they got to get away from him and build a fortification. Don't think height when you see tower. Think strength. Think stronghold. Hey, um, uh, can't come up with a word. Sorry. And they had asphalt for mortar. We have bricks covered with asphalt. How technologically capable are these folks? Yeah, this is some bright people. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city. What are they supposed to be doing? Replenishing the earth. But instead, what are they going to do? We're going to build a fortified city. 
we're going to prepare for the coming of Christ, if you will, the physical of the invisible. And a tower whose top is the heavens. Not high, by the way. We'll get to it in a second. Let us make a name for ourselves. What are they trying to do? What, what kind of name do they want? And who is us? Who is ourselves? And we've got to hurry here. You see that coming, don't you? Let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. They are afraid of being scattered. They are smart enough to know something that we don't always know when we read this. They're smart enough to know that they're not going to be destroyed. They're going to be what? And they have figured out something. How did they figure that out? Would you have figured that out today? Why God intends to scatter them. How did they know that? That he wouldn't come down and just blow them up. So they're going to build a fortified city and they're going to get inside of it. they got one language. They're one people. What do they have, by the way, over the one language and one people of the whole earth? What do they got? they got one ruler. Who's that guy? That's Nimrod. We get that uh, in Genesis 10, which we don't have time to do. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Of course, he could see it. He's omniscient. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. And this one thing is what they propose to do. What is the one thing they're trying to do? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Well, if the teacher is right, then they're trying to do the same thing that Genesis 6 did and the same thing Sodom and Gomorrah did. Might not make the case today, but you have to come back next week, which is kind of how I pay the heat bills here. But you get hot dogs and beans. That's not bad. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language. So he attacks their one language. Why does he do that? He could have done anything, couldn't he? Could he? No, this is the only thing he could do. This is the only right, fair, merciful, just, holy thing. Because he's what? Omniscient. He would pick the one perfect way that would account for everything. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language. They may not understand one another's speech. But obviously they did understand. Different different groups figured out what they did is they, they spread apart based on who they could talk to. So the Lord scattered them abroad. He did the very thing that they feared, the very thing that they were expecting, and he did it by confusing their language. And Babel stopped being named, stopped being, excuse me. (laughs) Babel no longer meant the gate of God or the gate of heaven. Okay, that's what Babel means. In its origin. Now it means, of course, confusion. But it didn't mean confusion then. What was this one thing they were trying to do? Or not trying to do. They were going to do it. He says they're going to do it. Nothing that they propose will be impossible, will be withheld. They're going to accomplish it. And my perfect response is to change the language. And they knew that they were going to be scattered. Did they know 
that he would do it by changing the language. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna min- I'm gonna move along here so we can shut down. We'll finish it next week. This is the first mention of Babel in all of Scripture, Genesis 11. I'm sorry, Genesis 10, when Nimrod decides to go to Babel and build. We have had a lot of that today, and that's perfectly okay. You still can have, uh, yeah. You still eat, even if your phone goes off in the middle of the church. We don't, we don't punish you. We have mercy. We do have judgment. (laughs) Mostly mercy. First mention of Babel. After Babel is first mentioned, it always stands for something that is in opposition to God. The Chaldean translation, Cush began. Nimrod, by the way, as we go back to 10.8, who began to prevail in wickedness, for he slew innocent blood and rebelled against God. That's the Chaldean uh, translation of 10.8 of Genesis. And so there you go, don't you? I have great wickedness before God. Whoever it is, if they're hungry, tell them we got hot dogs. Nimrod means rebel, the one who is the rebel or the rebel one. In Genesis 6.11, I have the earth was corrupt before God, which means the earth was corrupt against God. It was in opposition to God. Babel becomes in opposition to God. Nimrod in Genesis 10 is called a mighty hunter three times, another time in Chronicles. But a mighty hunter... Uh, who is against God. He is a killer of men. And he is the ruler of this group in Genesis 11. He is the one king in authority over them. He is the chief, the chieftain, the king of these who would want to build this tower, this gate, this facility. He is the universal ruler of the earth at this particular time, and he is against God. So what do you think when I say a universal ruler on earth who is the ruler of everyone on earth? He is the murderer of men, a killer, but he's very powerful, and he is against God. So who is Nimrod? He is the first Antichrist type in Scripture. And they have, they, they decide that what we need to do is build a city with a gate, a fortification. We have to resist God, stay in our stronghold in this one place. Because he won't destroy us. They certainly knew he wouldn't destroy them with what? Water, because they read the rules. He told Noah, I'm not going to flood them again. And they would know how many times the earth has been flooded, so they wouldn't be worried about flooding. So what are they worried about this time where they think they can build a strategic fortification? And Christ comes again. Let us go down. That is the triune God. Just as he did in Genesis 1, he comes down. Their greatest fear, scattering. Why are they so afraid of scattering? What's that a problem for? What name do they want? They get confusion instead of the name they want. Where's their strength? What strength do they have? Why did they think that God would let them do this one thing to the conclusion? Go. That's right. They're absolutely. Do you see the unified force again in Scripture? Where is it? It's in Revelation. It's in Armageddon. I have a unified force against who? 
against Christ. What is that? Yeah, that's ridiculous. Well, what makes man think that a unified force will prevail against God? Let me put it better. Who makes man think that a unified force will prevail against God? Satan does. Does he know it won't work? Oh, yeah. But he doesn't have any trouble making man think so, does he? So Satan was countering on what? Countering. Counting on what here? He likes to do one thing. What's that? He likes to see man killed by who? By God. Because he knows God loves man. God weeps over the death and the lost men. And he loves, Satan does, seeing God having to kill his own created that he loves. So what was Satan countering, counting on here? Sodom and Gomorrah, didn't he? He got scattered and said. Now, I want to point out something to you. Besides Christ destroying their unity and their language, um, notice that at Mount Sinai, when I have Israel come together, I have all kinds of different Israel there. I have Jews, I have a mixed multitude, and they did what? They spoke different languages, and they're at Mount Sinai, and I have this amazing thing happen there, just as I have it at Acts 2. What do I have at Acts 2? I have a whole bunch of Jews that speak a whole bunch of different languages, and what do they, what happens? They all hear one language again. I have the return of unity of language in both places, Sinai and Pentecost. And that's an extraordinary thing. God will return, he says in Zephaniah 3, the unity of language. What language will it be, by the way? What language do you think they spoke? Would, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I'm going to come back to you. I think I can prove to you that the pure language is Hebrew. Note this. Who else has been scattered in history besides these people in Genesis 11? The Jews have been scattered. Okay, so I have two, two groups of people. I have the Babylonians scattered, right? And not destroyed. Eventually, I wipe out a whole bunch of them that congregate down in Sodom. But, but to begin with, look at the pattern. Babylonians have one language. They are unified and they are scattered. Huh? Israel is pulled out, of Israel, pulled out of Egypt. They are unified. They have who is their king? They have God as their king. The Shekinah glory is on the throne in the Holy of Holies. He is the king of the nation of Israel. And what, did, what do they want? They want a human king, not a, not God himself. They want Saul. So they get rid of the human king. I'm sorry, they get rid of God and they want to replace him with a human king. And eventually he does what to them? Scatters them. Then he brings them back and then he brings himself. Who's a what? Now he's a human king and they still don't want him. He's both. He is the flame and human and they reject him. And what does he do? Scatters them again. Why does he scatter them? Do you notice something he doesn't do to Israel? What's that that he does? i got to quit, sorry. What does he not do? He doesn't destroy them. He scatters them. And so next week, we'll deal with all of that as best we can. And I will get to the pages I left out, I promise. Will I really? No, you don't. Okay. Let's rise and be dismissed.